There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. Today, just for today with Greg and Colin. Right on. <laughs> and every week, every right. Wednesday, for your listening pleasure. Last week, Greg, we talked about opinions, predictions, and what you call forecasts, which I call forecasts. Okay. The differences among them and the difficulty in making investment decisions based on them because those things all mess with us. This week, we want to look at the current state of the markets from a factual basis and try to make sense of the potential future outcomes because that's the big question that investors have these days is they see what's happening, but they want to know, I don't know, with some certainty in an area that's forever uncertain, what's going to happen. So we also want to discuss some of the natural emotions we're all feeling during these volatile times. And I know you're going to get into these behavioral biases and heuristics. I am indeed. Why don't you kick us off? Before we start, Something struck me this morning that has nothing to do with behavioral biases. You know how these days working from home has become a thing. A lot of companies are allowing people to use hybrid work models where they might spend three days in the office, two days at home. But the other thing I think that I've noticed is that people are dressing a lot more casual these days. Well, I am. I mean, I am. And when you walk downtown, there's just not as many people dressed formally like we used to just three years ago. I mean, I think I've only put on my Sunday go-to-meeting clothes once in the last two and a half years. I think that's a trend. I'm expecting it to continue. Do you remember, Greg, we had an assistant that worked with us? Yes. And he used to dress fairly casually. And then one day he showed up with a suit on. I know. And I looked at him, I said, so where's the job interview today? And he said, no, no, I was just, just felt like dressing up a little bit. And I think he left us two weeks after that to start a job somewhere else. And we used to be kind of uppity about wearing suits as well. And so, Interesting. What does this have to do with investing, Greg? Not a damn thing, really. It's just something that occurred to me. So, Okay. Anyway, Colin, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the markets have been somewhat volatile lately. I've noticed. As a result, you know, lots of our investors and lots of our clients are concerned about their portfolios. And we wanted to answer some of the more common questions that we're getting right now. But before we dive into that, I wanted to spend a few minutes focusing on something that always comes up when markets decline. And it comes up more noticeably when markets fall a lot, like in bear markets, meaning a decline of 20% or more. And this is a subject we discussed way back in episode 49 with Daniel Crosby. And it takes us into the realm of behavioral economics. So as a quick reminder, what is behavioral economics? Well, standard economics or traditional economics is sort of based on the assumption that investors are rational and that all decisions are made based on looking at an analysis of rational outcomes and making the best decision. And so behavioral economics believes that people are human and they make decisions not only specifically based on what's in their best interest, but based on various types of biases, both emotional and cognitive biases that might affect their decision making. And those biases, those are just mental shortcuts? They are. And they're sort of more based in psychology than they are in 
rational economics. Like some of the work on biases that I've read about is where they've originated from maybe were caveman days, where like a saber-toothed tiger was stalking you. And so you had this natural affinity to flee. You didn't have to think about it. You just went. Maybe that's a self-preservation bias. Maybe. What I want to talk today, though, is about hindsight bias. And this is also called the knew-it-all-along bias. And this is a psychological phenomenon that allows people to convince themselves after an event that they accurately predicted it before it happened. And so this leads people to conclude that they could accurately predict other events in the future. So hindsight bias is studied a lot in behavioral economics because it's a common trait among individual investors. So again, it's a psychological phenomenon in which a person becomes convinced they accurately predicted an event before it occurred. Or they might actually believe that they should have or could have predicted that event. And what happens, it can cause overconfidence in your ability to predict other future events and may lead to unnecessary risks. The trouble with hindsight bias is it can negatively affect decision-making in the future. And in investing, hindsight bias might manifest itself as a sense of frustration or regret at not having acted in advance of an event that moves the market. So if we look at the situation right now, many people including ourselves. Advisors aren't immune from it. We tend to look back and say, wow, gee, back in January, we really should have known that PE ratios were very high and inflation was starting to come up. And we should have known then that the market was going to go down 25% from its high because of those factors. Of course, easy to believe now, but at that time, it wasn't so easy to predict. And what happens is that sometimes people will say, well, you know what? I knew that was going to happen. And now they'll come up with a prediction about the future and believe that their judgment is better than it is. Greg, hindsight bias is my favorite bias. Is it? Yeah, it is because everybody has it all the time. Because you're right. I've had a number of calls, emails from people that said, why didn't we do this at the beginning of the year? It was obvious. And the argument, and I know you're going to talk more about it, is that, well, of course it wasn't obvious at the time or you would have made a different decision. That's right. When you're in the middle of it, it is not obvious. So just easier to look back. Well, that's right. And I've said before, sitting in this chair for as long as you and I have as investment advisors. And oh, use the, you always say 26 years. I wasn't going to say that. I don't know why you would think that. So 26 years you've been sitting <laughs> in that chair. and 26 years. And every day I know exactly what I should have done yesterday. And it's like, well, why didn't I? I should have known that. Oh, oh gee, you know, the market really sold off yesterday. I should have known that it would be up today. Why didn't I buy yesterday? It's a natural human thing, but you have to be careful to not start to believe that you have the ability to predict it in the future. Investors often feel a lot of pressure to perfectly time buying or selling stocks to maximize their returns. And when they suffer a loss, they regret not acting earlier. And with regret comes the thought that they saw it coming all along. And another thing that we run into, of course, is investors may think, well, I can't necessarily... I shouldn't be expected to know what's going to happen in the future, but my advisors are professionals and they should know. Ooh, and, yeah. and so what happens is that even hindsight bias, even if it doesn't affect you or it does in most cases affect individuals, but then they can pass that off towards another advisor who should have known better. And we do run into that quite a lot. And we have to remind people our ability to predict the future is probably no better than anybody else's. We can easily look at what's going on currently but we can't necessarily take that to say, okay, well then for sure the market's going to go down or the market's going to go up, et cetera. I saw something just the other day. It was on CNBC and it was an interview with a woman from S&P, Standard & Poor's, which does ratings. 
And they did a study and they looked at manager performance versus the benchmark. And you know the numbers. I don't know. 70% of all managers underperform the benchmark by their fees or something like that. Sure. Now, they had a caveat to this. They said, that's in the first three to five years. They said, if you take that data out over 20 years, that number's like 98%. That's pretty significant. So when investors are looking for you or I or somebody else to say, this is what's going to happen in the future, and 98% of fund managers and investment professionals underperform the benchmark over a 20-year period, these are well-trained people. These are people that work in finance. So I don't know where I'm going with this other than maybe well, just support just, your argument. That's right. It just highlights the point that nobody has the crystal ball. And that's part of the bias. With the regret that comes from not having acted sooner, a lot of people come to believe that they saw it coming all along. And in fact, if you could turn back the clock to that time, what actually happened was one of many possibilities that might have been anticipated. And so whichever one of them pans out, an investor will become convinced that they saw it coming. And that's part of the problem is because if we take, let's say, starting from this moment today, we could say, well, the market's down over 20%. It could go up now. This could be as bad as it gets. Interest rates maybe will peak in the next couple of months. Then they'll start coming down and minus 25% is as bad as it gets. Another option might be that, well, we could be down 25% and six months from now, we could be down to 35% because interest rates will keep going up, putting pressure on all sorts of things including company earnings, things like that. And so it could be down another 10%. These are two possible outcomes that we could look forward to. Six months from now, we'll look back, we'll know exactly what happened, and we'll say, you know what? We should have known. We predicted it. But again, it could only be one of one possible outcome. But we'll be sure in looking back that we knew it was going to happen. I have a prediction I want to share with you. I think the UK is going to look back six months from now and say, what did we do? The rest of the world is focused on monetary policy and tightening of the money supply by raising rates and open market operations. And then the UK the other day with their new leadership just announced the largest tax break since 1972 and an increase in government spending. So to me, I'm just guessing, six months from now, those people are going to look back and say, why did we do that? Exactly. That's just my guess. That's right. And they might have hindsight bias then. Exactly. One of the things we want to talk about is, well, how do you prevent hindsight bias. And the only way to actually prevent it is through education. And for people that are really susceptible to it, I'd say, look, as we just did, starting today, let's make a journal. Let's look forward and say, what are the possible outcomes? And then see what happens. See how close we were to being right. Hindsight bias is caused by revising, essentially, the probability of an outcome after the fact. So when you know the outcome, people tend to exaggerate the extent of their prediction in the event. And again, these biases can be found in any situation. It can be predicting the weather. It can be elections. You know, certainly there's a lot of election talk going on and obviously investments. One of the things that comes along with hindsight bias is overconfidence and anchoring. But those are two different things. They are two different types of biases. And after an event occurs, we use the knowledge of the outcome as an anchor and we attach our prior judgments to the outcome. So that issue might be partly science-based as well. So hindsight bias might not be tied only to the ineffective processing of information, but rooted in something we call adaptive learning. As new information comes to light, we learn from that. And part of the reason that hindsight bias is so prevalent is because it's comforting to think that the world is predictable in some way. And as a result, we end up trying to see unpredictable events as having been predictable. So we want to have a positive view on our ability to make sense of things. 
and then we create that story. So listen, we've been through lots of hindsight bias situations before, as I say. It tends to be the most prevalent in times like this when the markets are quite volatile. And I'm not talking about volatile up. I'm talking about volatile down. Because nobody complains about upside volatility. Like, I'm making too much money. Exactly. (laughs) Although you do see hindsight bias from people that say, I should have had all my money in stocks. You know, if you look through the period coming out of, let's say, the bear market of the 2020 pandemic. Everybody said, oh, we should have seen that pandemic coming because we heard about it first in January or December even. We should have known that it was going to become a big thing and the markets were going to go down 35%. And then they subsequently had hindsight bias when the markets actually rocketed back from their lows and had all-time highs. And it's like, well, I should have known that with all the money the government was throwing, things were going to improve. Yeah, but now it'd be like, and I should have known with all the money the government was throwing that we'd have higher than normal inflation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> you can drive yourself crazy. And our interest is in helping people through these periods of hindsight bias. And it ties into the forecasting. We talked last time about how you can have highly intelligent, well-educated, and knowledgeable people trying to make predictions or forecasts about the future and how the likelihood of that actually being accurate is pretty low. So bottom line, hindsight bias, it's a natural human response to past events in which we believe we knew the event would happen. We then associate that belief with new events, even when the circumstances that can affect the outcome are different. So it's something we want to be careful of. We encourage anyone that's torturing themselves with those kinds of thoughts to talk to us. And we'll try to make sure that we move forward as much as possible without letting hindsight bias affect our decisions. So with that backdrop, why don't we look at what's going on currently? Sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. And we did send out a message to our clients lately via email and social media and blog posts. And here it goes. We've had a lot of questions these days focused on recessions, stock versus bond returns, inflation, and global macro events. Stock and bond markets continue to show negative returns. Up until today, we should have known that things were going to bounce back Oh, but you don't know that because by the time this is recorded, edited, and then distributed... Good point. ...the market will be whatever it'll be. Right on. If you look at what the central banks have been doing, they've been focused on monetary policy and have raised interest rates substantially since the beginning of the year as a way to combat inflation. And as inflation numbers continue to run at four to five decade highs, this means that this monetary policy could continue for a while. And the question is, has this monetary policy of interest rate hikes directly led us or is it leading us into a recession? Can I answer that? Please. Well, by definition, we're in a recession. Right on. The economic definition of a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth. I know there's some debate out there about whether or not the current administration in the U.S. defines our current recession as a recession because of lower than normal unemployment rates. But just the fact that if you look up, if you Google, Greg, am I promoting people Google things? Why not? It's, Why not? it's, it's an easy, easy way. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? <laughs> but if you Google, what is a recession? I guarantee you that it's going to come up and say two quarters of negative GDP growth. That's right. Now, recessions are also lagging indicators of what has happened though. And there's a I don't know if they're a company or an arm of the government, but the National Bureau of Economic Research, you're familiar with those people? I am. These people are tasked with defining certain markets or economic contraction or expansion periods. 
And so they're the ones that will decide if it's a recession. Now, the good news is that three out of four times when they've said we're in a recession is actually at the end of a recession. It takes a while because it's such a lagging indicator. By the time they identify the recession has started, it's often ended. Now you're back into a new expansionary period. That's right. Exactly. So to those people that have said back in the beginning of the year, why didn't you go to cash? Why didn't you do something different? Whatever the case might be, because they have hindsight bias, I will use my hindsight bias and say three or four times when the National Bureau of Economic Research announces a recession, it's the end of a recession. Well, and so listen, so the question then is, let's say we're either in a recession, according to the precise definition, or we're approaching a recession that may be deeper and may be accompanied by higher unemployment, as people are saying. So the question is, well, how have markets fared during and after a recession? The answer is, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know what has happened. And there's been 11 recessions in the U.S. since 1953. On average, each of those previous recessions lasted about 11 months. So during each of those recessionary times, investors would have had the same questions as they do now. What's going to happen? What should we do about it? And the answer is one that most people already inherently know. If you stayed invested, stayed the course, then your portfolio would have rebounded from each of those previous recessions. Every bear market so far has been erased by subsequent bull markets. Okay, so then the next question would be, All right, that's great, but will stocks ever go back to the value they were at before the recession? And of course, as you know, on this podcast, we would never, or in fact, in any conversation, we would never guarantee that stocks will go up in value, but we would expect them to based on all of the data from previous market corrections. So again, each time the stock market is sold off, it's returned to its previously set high watermark and then continued to grow further. And so the opportunity in stocks could be a buying opportunity currently. If you went to the store and you found something that was 20% cheaper than it was six months ago, you might be inclined to think that's a better deal. And why would stocks be any different? When you look at bonds and stocks, those are asset classes are fundamentally different from each other. Bonds are simply loans that have defined lives to them. They're finite. At the end of the loan period, the principles return to the investor. And during the loan period, interest payments are made to the investor. Wait, let's go back to that point, because this is one that we're getting a lot of questions about. Stocks are down bonds are down. But I want to highlight what you just said there, that bonds are different than stocks. They have a defined length of time to them. And at the end of that time, what happens, Greg? Well, at the end of that time, assuming that the company that issued them or the issuer has not gone bankrupt, then the investor gets their final interest payment and they get their money back. So the full repayment of the bond at its par value. So even though there's a lot of bonds trading out there, maybe 12% below what their par price is currently, somewhere around there, In this structure, it means that if you held that bond to maturity, you would get all of that back, plus you'd collect your interest payments along the way. Exactly. Do I got that right, Greg? You do. I know I do, because you and I both understand bonds. Exactly. And so unlike the bond market, the stock market has no end date. So there's no formal period. It can trade in perpetuity, essentially. And the stock market also has a much higher expected rate of return than the bond market. And remember, I said expected rate of return. It means that you would always get a higher rate of return on stocks than bonds. We certainly did not get a higher rate of return on stocks than bonds this year to date. And that's why investors tend to have significant investment in stocks, because they do have a higher expected return. And why would you think they have a higher expected return? Well, they have higher return characteristics. (laughs) Yeah, they're riskier. (laughs) You're rewarded for having more risk. Exactly. Right. Capitalism is one of those things that when you invest in a riskier asset, 
when where there's not a defined amount of interest, let's say, that you're earning or a defined maturity date, you're taking on more risk and you have an expectation of a higher return. And over the long run, if stocks never returned more than bonds, then I would think you might be hard-pressed to encourage people to buy stocks. Well, you wouldn't buy them. If your expected return on stocks was the same as the expected return on bonds, and bonds are safer, then you would just buy bonds. Exactly. Now, actually, I want to talk about something before we move on to the next part there, because as you said, bonds are down right now. Let's call it 12%-ish. Now, a lot of people are saying, yeah, but look at all these great GIC rates that are coming out. I can buy a GIC that pays me 5%. My argument against that would be you're going to lock in 5% for five years when inflation's running at 8% and the yield to maturity on a bond portfolio, such as the PIMCO monthly income fund as an example, has a yield to maturity of 8%. It doesn't make any sense to me why you'd lock in at five. That's right. And it's one of those things though, it's maybe a little bit of hindsight bias in that We just had a feeling that bonds would go down this year. I knew that bonds were going to go down this year because interest rates were so low and everybody knew that interest rates were going to go up. And sure, and a lot of people might say, and everybody knows interest rates are going to continue to go up. So that means it's going to continue to be negative for bonds and bonds will go down even further. And therefore, I'm going to lock my money up at four and a half or 5%, whatever the best rate is, just to be guaranteed. But as you say, many bond funds right now have yields to maturity far in excess of what GICs are paying. And we know historically that if you try to project an expected return from a bond or a bond fund, it's pretty much in line with the ingoing yield to maturity. So if a bond fund has a yield to maturity of 8%, for example, then that would be an estimate of what you might expect over time from that point forward. Now, listen, there's no guarantee you're going to get it. Interest rates could go up. You might get 4% instead of 8 Interest rates might stabilize in which case you might just get the 8% yield and interest rates could go down at some point if indeed central banks keep raising interest rates and that pushes the economy further into a recession or into a recession that everybody will agree is a recession, then you could see interest rates actually coming down, which would be very positive for bond funds. So you're right. And listen, there's comfort in GICs and I understand why people like them. And if people are happy to lock in a rate at 4.5% on a one-year GIC and not be uncomfortable with the fact that it's illiquid, meaning you can't sell it prior to maturity like you could a bond fund, then I guess that would be a decision that would be made from a comfort standpoint, but it might not necessarily give you the best return. I want to go through the link just for our listeners because I've had a number of questions about this from people calling in. Here's the link as I know it. Stop me if I'm making any errors or you want to add to it. So you have a supply chain issue that starts in March of 2020, which leads to an issue with the supply of goods in the world. Now, the demand stays constant for those goods, so therefore the price of those goods goes up. That's inflation. Then you've got central banks that are now trying to fight this inflation by raising interest rates to curb spending, to curb inflation, to bring inflation down. But the interest rates impact the bonds that are trading in the marketplace. Because bonds are trading in the marketplace are trading on yesterday's interest information or some period of time before. And the new bonds being issued have today's interest rates. So the demand for those bonds goes up and the demand for bonds that are already trading in the marketplace goes down. Well, sort of. Sort of. I mean, all bonds are priced daily. And of course, the trading price of bond is going to reflect the current interest rates. So 
in a sense, what you're saying is the price of those earlier bonds has already gone down to reflect the current levels of interest rates. That's right. I just want to make that link clear to our listeners. Inflation leads to higher interest rates, which leads to lower bond prices. But then those bonds that have the lower prices, as you mentioned, have maturities. The yield going forward for those bonds is higher exactly. than it was a year ago. That's so right. That, when we mentioned that yield to maturity being eight or so percent, yeah. that's where it comes from. Exactly. Okay. And so what's happening is you talked about, and we talked about earlier, bond prices are volatile. It can be. The price of existing bonds in the marketplace go down when interest rates go up. The amount that they go down will depend on a lot of different factors that we won't go into here, but let's just say directionally they go down as interest rates go up. But as those bonds roll off, and in a fund, they roll off and are replaced with new bonds, they get back to their par value. So they recover the whatever value they had lost when interest rates went up. They ultimately recover that value, they roll off, and new bonds are purchased at the higher prevailing level of interest rates. So you have higher income going forward. So that's right. So the yeah. income on a fund like you mentioned might have been 4% a year and a half ago and is now 8%. Okay, so yes, investors that held the fund suffered temporarily, but that suffering will be hopefully short-lived and recovery will be down the road and the income has gone up dramatically in that portfolio. So we've talked about bond prices having gone down in response to interest rates that have gone up in response to inflation. Will bond prices go up? Well, as we've talked about, bond prices go up because of mathematics, a bond that was issued at $100 that's now trading at $95 has to go back up to $100. That's just math. And so the return on that bond from today going forward is much better than the return you experienced in the last year when that bond went from 100 down to 95 So the only thing that you can be reasonably comfortable with is that when you suffer a loss on bond prices like that, that that loss will be recovered over some future period of time. Right on. What's different this time, and it's one of the questions that we get a lot of is, well, why are my bonds down along with my stocks? Like typically you think of bonds and stocks not being so correlated. You think of them being at least uncorrelated and maybe inversely correlated, meaning, well, when my stocks go down, my bonds will go up. And when my stocks go up, my bonds will come down. And that's normally the case, but there are periods and they have happened in the past, but you might have to go back 50 years to find an extended period, like a whole year, where bonds are down at the same time as stocks. Well, but they don't have a perfectly negative correlation. Exactly. I think I read the correlation is 0.3. Well, and you, like you, you wouldn't want a perfectly negative correlation. If every time your stocks went up, your bonds went down, and every time your bonds went up, your stocks went down, then you'd end up with a portfolio that sort of never went anywhere. The way to look at it is, look, all stocks and bonds both have positive expected returns. When you buy a bond, you expect a return. When you buy stocks, you also expect a return, and you, in fact, you expect a higher return. But you don't expect, over the long term, to get a negative return on bonds. And so the return on both of those asset classes is positive. It's just that they may not behave exactly in the same way. And that's what we mean when we talk about correlation. It's not whether or not one goes up and one goes down. It's just that they don't go up and down typically at exactly the same time. But the last time this happened was 2009 during the global financial crisis. That's right. And in that period, the stock market was down 50 or so percent and the bond market was down, I don't know, 10 or 15 percent. And right? the interesting thing was that was over a 
shorter period of time. Because I think if you look at the full year, let's say 2008, I think bonds actually had a positive return. Although there was, I think, there may be a six-month period of time in there where they were both down and relatively substantially. All right. And then what happened? They went up. Of course. And Problem in fact, solved. Uh, the interesting thing is that bonds have not had a negative year like this in decades, more than decades. I mean, to be down 12% in one year, I'm not sure that's happened. I don't think it's happened in Canada before. It may never have happened. Because like, I, uh, I know like yeah. 1994, the bond market was down 4.9% That's or something right. Like that, that was a bad year. But the thing is that when those kinds of things have happened in the past, you tend to get a relatively good snapback in the following year or two. And so again, it's not a guarantee, but we do know that when the starting level of interest rates in a bond fund are high, like 8%, and not all funds, of course, have 8% yields to maturity at this point. There's lots of bond funds maybe with 3 or 4% yield to maturity, but it gives you an indication of what you might expect in the future. And that's looking a whole lot better these days than it was a year ago when interest rates were much lower. Yeah. So let's summarize real quick because we're running out of time. What should people be doing with all this information, Greg? Well, I think a couple of things. One is avoid the natural instinct to say, I knew it all along. I knew that things were going to go down because at that point, you're going to come to some prediction about the future based on that expectation that you knew better. And therefore, you might say, I know things are going to get worse before they get better. We should sell out now and get back in when things seem more stable. Try to avoid that. We all know what's happened. None of us know what's going to happen. So avoid that temptation and focus on things like we've always focused on, asset allocation, and things that we know rather than things that we guess. And second thing is stay invested. Rebalance the portfolio. Right now, there's, we're always rebalancing from the best performing asset class to the worst performing asset class. That's what rebalancing is all about. Unfortunately, lately, everything's been poor, but bonds have not been as poor as stocks. Is it a good time to buy bonds? Probably, yes, because of the higher yields in these bond funds. Is it a good time to buy stocks? Well, they're down 20 or 25% from their highs. Makes sense to me. So look at the portfolio, talk to your advisor, and make sure you rebalance. Right on. And that's all I got. That's all you got. Well, listen, we want all of our listeners out there to be shiny, happy people. Yes, we do. And the only way to do it is to stay invested, ignore this noise, and just stay invested. I'm going to lead us out with a song, Greg. You probably know it. I do know it. Yep. This is a great song. Is this R.E.M.? It's R.E.M. And this is a fitting song because it's been hard to stay happy the last couple of years, I'll admit. But we know that things are going to get better, right? Exactly. All right. Till next time. Next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.